We are in part two of the series called You're Not the Boss of Me. And as I said last week, in this series, it's kind of a how-to series, we're addressing how we can say no to the emotions that compete for control over our lives. Now, if you missed last week, you can catch up on YouTube or our website or our Apple podcast. And I encourage you, in order to get the most out of this series, catch up, because each sermon in this series will build upon the last one. But I want to start us off today by having you consider your answer to this question. What would you do if you knew that you could get away with it? Hmm? I know you think this throughout the week anyway, so consider it today. Now, if you've ever asked people this question or read about people who've been asked this question, when you see their answers, you will not be encouraged about humanity. What was it? What evil lurks in the hearts of men, only the shadow knows, for those of you older than I am. It's really astounding what people would do if they can get away with it, isn't it? But before you go throwing rocks, you have to remember that somewhere, probably down in the deepest, darkest recesses of our own selves, of our own minds, we already knew this. Because when the social and moral filters that we've learned growing up are turned off, We human beings are capable of some pretty gross and pretty extreme things, some pretty bad things. Now, I'm bringing this up because it gives us an on-ramp for the things we're going to be talking about today in our message. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us today. Thank you for bringing your ecclesia together. Thank you for the friendships and the love we share Thank you for an opportunity to dig into your word a bit. God, as we do so, we would ask that you would use your word to change our hearts and minds and to draw us closer to you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so while these social and moral filters that we've adopted into our lives, and we talked about those last week, they're those things that make it so we can perform basic tasks in life so we can accomplish basic societal goals, so we can go shopping without punching somebody out, or so we can make friends, or so we can get a job, or we can have relationships, you know, things like that. But the truth is, we really don't think about that stuff a lot. We're kind of taught it when we're young, and it kind of clicks in and just becomes sort of automatic. And indeed, when we get older, Instead of thinking about these these moral compasses and these moral barriers, we're usually encouraged to ignore all the bad stuff about ourselves, to ignore all that gross stuff, those gross thoughts that we have and things we think. And instead, we're encouraged to pay attention to the times when we're having a good time or when we have really good feelings. That's what we're called to pay attention to, we're told to pay attention to. Pay attention to the good stuff, ignore all the bad stuff. But think about it. Think about how often... Our world encourages us to follow our hearts. Follow your heart. All throughout Instagram, all on TikTok, so many people, just follow your heart. Follow your heart, Gen Z people. Follow your heart. Or listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart when you're considering doing something. By the way, let me ask you this question. Is it a good idea to follow our hearts? Well, my lawyer answer is, it depends. It depends upon what's in your heart. 
See, last week we heard what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? Remember we talked about this through this illustration. Jesus told us that God isn't concerned with the things that we eat, with the things that go into our mouth, because those things just get digested and eventually come out. But God is more concerned with the things that come out of our mouths because they come from our hearts. Verse 18. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Bad things, the bad things that come from our hearts defile us. Those bad things put us at odds with our God. Remember, we talked about it last week, that the quickest way for us to be at odds with God is to be at odds with the people whom God created and whom God loves. Well, from there, Jesus went on and he said this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And then in Matthew, Matthew added some more of Jesus' descriptions of those things that live in our hearts. He added greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and arrogance and folly. But you have to remember this. What comes out of your mouth originates with what is already in you, what is already in your heart. And those things often hurt other people. This explains something that all of us have experienced. This explains how people who seem otherwise kind or otherwise nice or otherwise normal will unexpectedly or suddenly say or do something horrific. You ever see the interviews when someone's committed a horrible crime and the police find out and they interview the neighbors and the neighbors go, huh, he was such a nice guy. I didn't see that coming. She was such a nice lady. Who knew? Well, those things can be seen as bellwethers. Those things can be seen as indicators of things that could happen in the future. Therefore, it's important to know how to recognize these bellwethers. Recognizing a bellwether of something that could happen with a person is a pretty useful skill. These bellwethers can help you learn a lot about a person's true essence when you watch them react in any given situation. Whatever is already in a person's heart is the thing that's going to come out of the person's heart when that person is shaken. It makes it so that when we see a person say or do horrific and hurtful things, instead of asking, oh no, where did that come from? we can understand that it came from the heart. The only things that can come out of a person's heart are things that are in a person's heart to begin with. Now watch this. Can you see what I have? Yeah, it's a a jar full of Skittles. Now watch this. Shaking this jar or tipping this jar did not determine what fell out of this jar, right? What determined what fell out is what's in there. Shaking the jar merely exposes that. It merely shows you what was in there. And the same goes for you, and the same goes for me, and the same goes for everybody we know. If you're walking around carrying in yourself sweet water, when you're bumped, sweetness will come out. 
But if you walk around carrying bitter water, guess what happens when you're bumped? Bitterness comes out. We need to know this. And in fact, that's why we need to heed the advice of King Solomon. The advice that he left us 3,000 years ago. Here's what he said. Above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Now, why did Solomon rank this piece of advice above all the other pieces of advice in Proverbs? Because everything you do and say originates in and comes from your heart. So in addition to monitoring your good behavior, which we're all very good at monitoring our good behavior, right? I mean, you're all doing a very nice job of monitoring your behavior, sitting politely here today and listening to me talk, even though some of you might not really be listening. You might be thinking what you're going to do for lunch. Or did you leave the stove on? Or did you unplug the coffee pot? You might be thinking about something else. But we need to listen to Solomon. Because we need to monitor not only our behavior, but we need to monitor our hearts as well. Because there's some bad stuff in there. Now, whenever I say something like that, I like to test it out. So let's test it. When you were young, did your parents ever seem to get all wiggy and weird for no reason at all, ever? Did ever happen to you? You just came home, all of a sudden, dad's just flying off the handle, mom's just acting weird and crazy, and you go, what the heck is that? There's no reason. We didn't do anything wrong. Well, they did that because they were carrying something in their hearts. If they were carrying anger, anger spilled out when they got home. If they were carrying fear, then fear spilled out. That's how that works. The things that are in our hearts will eventually spill out onto all of those people around us. And that's why we need to guard our hearts. Now, guarding our heart involves cleaning out our heart, cleaning out some of the toxins and keeping those toxins out. And that's what this series is all about. So I'd like to begin today with something that we all have in our hearts that we need to learn how to handle so it doesn't become the boss of us. And that something is the emotion we know as guilt. We all feel guilty from time to time. Sometimes we feel guilty when we're not guilty at all. Or sometimes we feel guilty when we feel bad about something that we either didn't do or we did it, but it wasn't a big deal. We refer to that as false guilt, and we're not talking about false guilt today. So if you come from a Catholic background or a Jewish background, I'm sorry, you're probably still going to have to deal with that at another time. But today, we're going to be talking about the kind of guilt that we're most familiar with and the kind of guilt that we're most associated with. We're going to be talking about the guilt that we feel when we are guilty. The guilt we feel when we have done something wrong and we've hurt someone by our actions. That's a guilt that can have far-reaching implications. That's a guilt that we tend to carry with us for a long, long time. That's a guilt that will begin to define us when we carry it around for too long. And closely related to that guilt is the guilt that arises when we did something wrong, but we've just stopped feeling it after a while, and we feel guilty that we don't feel it anymore. Also related to that is the guilt that we feel when we've done something so bad and so disturbing that it overwhelms us, so we've come up with a rational excuse 
for why we did it. What do they say about the word rationalize? It's coming up with a rational lie that we tell ourselves. But we come up with these rational excuses so we can stuff it down. We can do our best to forget that thing, to forget the guilt, even though because we know we're guilty of it, it keeps returning. It keeps coming back. It keeps haunting us, making us revert to whatever narrative we had to create that allowed us to stuff it down in the first place. It's a game, and we've all played this game before. We go, well, I know I did it, but I was really young. Or I know that I behaved that way, but it was my first job. Or, or, or it was my first relationship, or I was having a bad day, or I was in a bad place. Or how about I was lonely? Or as Adam said, yes, God, I ate the fruit. But the woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit and I ate it. So God, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You shouldn't have given me the woman. Yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I did it. But I have an excuse. And that's what we all do. We all devise narratives that allow us to distance ourselves from our actual guilt so we can suppress our feelings. And this is the guilt we're going to be talking about. Because when we deny it, or when we try to excuse it, we always end up empowering it. It gives that guilt power. Denying, excusing, or allowing guilt to define you always empowers it, and it allows that guilt to throw us off balance. And when our guilt throws us off balance in our relationships, especially the relationships most important to us, that guilt becomes the boss of us, because guilt creates a debtor-creditor relationship. Quick legal definition, a debtor-creditor relationship is a relationship in which one person, the debtor, has received something from another person, a creditor, that the debtor is obligated to repay. If you have a mortgage, you understand how this works. If you have a car payment, you understand how this works. Well, guilt creates a debtor-creditor relationship within us, between us and ourselves, and between us and other people. And this is really important to know, to understand, because it's where we're going with this series. With every wrong you've ever committed against another person, there was a sense in which you took something from them. You could have taken their childhood from them. You could have taken their trust from them. You could have taken their money from them. You could have taken their time from them or their self-esteem. Just to name a few, there's so many things. But every time you do something wrong to another person, you take something from them. And because you've taken something from them, you owe something back to them. That's the debtor-creditor relationship. That's why we say we owe somebody an apology. We took something, and now we need to give that person something back. And though we can't give back exactly what we took, we are indebted to them nonetheless. And we owe them whatever we can give them. Now, here's the thing that makes it so difficult to grasp. We don't typically experience guilt as debt. We experience guilt as a weight, a weight that leaves us off balance. Now, for some of you, because of your unresolved guilt, you walk around unbalanced. For example, in parenting, in your parenting, your unresolved guilt made you unbalanced and caused you to overparent. Something you brought into the parenting situation from your past, you feel guilty, so now you overparent, you overdo it. You're a hover parent, a helicopter parent. But on the flip side, 
Some of that guilt can cause you to parent too permissively. I was picked on by my parents. They told me I couldn't do anything. So you do whatever you want, son, whatever you want, daughter. In your relationships, your unresolved guilt made you unbalanced and caused you to either be too aggressive in your relationship or too timid in your relationship. Maybe your unresolved guilt is causing you to have a problem with being able to forgive other people or to love other people because you're off balance due to a debtor-creditor relationship that you experience as a weight. Think about it. When you finally resolve guilt, how does it feel? We say things like, I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. You see it? Well, here's the thing about guilt. We carry the weight of guilt with us wherever we go. And we can pick up that weight in one place and bring it with us everywhere else. Maybe you picked up your guilt weight at work, but then you brought it home to your family. Maybe you picked up your guilt weight in college, but then you took it off into the next season of your life. Maybe you picked up your guilt weight on a business trip, but then you brought it back into your house. Our guilt weight travels with us. And if we don't resolve it, the weight of guilt evolves into something very different and very sinister. Unresolved guilt evolves into anger. Because at the end of the day, your guilt makes you very angry with yourself. And then that anger leaks. You might have disappointed yourself, but now you're constantly disappointed with the people closest to you. You might not have lived up to your own expectations, and now nobody around you can live up to your expectations. Guilty people don't feel the debtor-creditor relationship. Guilty people feel the weight, and the weight throws us off balance. But here's the really difficult part, and then we'll look at something that God has given us in his word to get us through this. Guilty people, and we're all guilty, guilty people rarely ever make the connection between their guilt and their anger. Guilty people have a very tough time identifying the source of their rage. And if, God forbid, anybody tries to help them identify it, anyone tries to help them point out the rage, guilty people are quick to point out what's wrong in that person. As a result, these failures rarely get uncovered. I mean, who wants that? Instead, they remain hidden deep down in our hearts and yet allow us to see very clearly everyone else's failures. Now, there's a really good reason why we suppress our guilt, why we come up with excuses, why we make up plausible narratives through which we can try to explain away our own actions instead of just facing and embracing them. And that reason is because facing and embracing our actions leaves us standing condemned. It leaves us with no recourse. There is no way to undo or unsay the things that we've done or that we've said. So again, we create a narrative and we try to move on, but it doesn't work. Because our past was not designed to be completely left behind. Our past is a part of our story. And as much as we want to distance ourselves from it, if we don't resolve our past, it just stays with us. Have I depressed you enough? Well, I have some good news for you. You don't have to be defined by your past. Nor do you have to spend this season of your life denying your past. Because God has given us a better option. And he's presented it to us through a man who had more regret and carried more guilt in his life than 
anyone here can imagine. His name was the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man whose actions in life left him so broken and so ashamed and so guilty that one would find it near impossible to see that he had any way out of it whatsoever. See, when we meet Paul, he was a Pharisaic prosecutor or, and a Pharisaic persecutor. Paul was a Pharisee, and he would go out and find people he felt were violating the Jewish law, and then he would persecute them and ultimately prosecute them. Well, for a long while, Paul had been arresting and torturing and killing innocent men and women, ostensibly in the name of God. But later in his life, Paul, after he'd met Jesus, Paul had to come back around and face the people whom he'd harmed. He had to face the parents of children he'd arrested. He had to face the children of parents he arrested and in some cases had executed. He had to face the communities of people whose entire families he had tortured and or killed. And he did it all in the name of God. And as a result, Paul had regret that we cannot even fathom. And yet, here is what's most amazing about Paul's story. Paul never, ever, ever, ever denied his guilt. Rather, he documented his guilt. Go read Romans 7. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but go back and read it. Paul said, the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I can't stop doing. Paul documented his guilt, and we know that because we have it, his documentation right here in front of us. Instead of allowing guilt to define him, though, instead of spending all of his time trying to distance himself from his guilt and deny his guilt, when Paul became a follower of Jesus, he discovered another way to deal with his guilt problem. And he recorded it for us in the letter he wrote to the believers living in Nero's Rome. We call it the Book of Romans. And here's what Paul wrote. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'll put it up on the screen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. All right, so put on our Bible study hats. Whenever we see the word therefore, we need to find out what it's there for. Well, this sentence follows the end of chapter 7, Romans 7. Remember that the Bible chapters and verses were not added to the Bible in the beginning or when it was written. They were added in the mid-1200s through about the mid-1500s. And they were added as a way to just more easily navigate the text. So the, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not what we would say biblical. They're just in there to help us. So Paul ends Romans 7 with these words on the subject. And these words he ends with are reflective of his own deep-seated sin and his history of being guided by his sins. We go back to Romans 7, 24 for a second. Paul said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So from this, here's what we can learn. We can hear Paul's anguish. That word wretched, that is a, that's, a, that's a tough word. From the word wretched, we can hear Paul's anguish. We can hear the weight of the guilt that his sin has heaped upon him. The word wretched in the Greek means miserable or profoundly unhappy. But Paul didn't end things there because he understood that he still had hope of overcoming all the issues precipitated by his sin. I am a wretched man who can't do anything to help myself, but, verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law. 
but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So Paul's words reflect the fact that through Jesus, something new had taken place. Something new had happened. That through Jesus, God had fulfilled a promise that he made to his people some 600 years before through the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised to make a new covenant with his people, both his ethnic people and those people whom God had grafted into the family. So while the old law gave Paul no way to escape the impact of sin on his life, the understanding of the law ushered in by Jesus allowed Paul to be rescued from the debt of condemnation that he owed for his prior actions. That brings us back to Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation because God has done something new, and as a result, no more condemnation. There is therefore now. There is therefore now a way to be past, to get past, not to forget, not to minimize, but to get past it, to face my guilt and to embrace my guilt, even though it won't erase my guilt. There is now therefore a way to live without condemnation. There's a way now to live without having to pretend that the past never happened or having to make up narratives or excuses and stories and a futile, meaningless attempt to assuage our own guilt and lighten the burden caused by it. So what is that way? Well, Paul said this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everyone who faces the condemning truth about themselves and their sin and acknowledges it to God and surrenders their life to the lordship of Jesus, not holding on to all the things they want to hold on to, but just surrenders a bit of it, surrenders their entire life to the lordship of Jesus, will find themselves no longer condemned and will regain the balance in their life. Why is this true? Well, Paul continues, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because through Christ Jesus, through a relationship with Christ Jesus, through embracing everything God through Christ has done for us, through stepping into this new covenant relationship with God that has different standards and different rules and a different way of thinking and a different relationship with God through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, which we have to talk about another time, that law of the Spirit has set you free from this other law, the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is when you sin, you're stuck. When you hurt somebody, you're guilty. And you're guilty forever, and there's no way to go back and undo it. Under the old system, guilt is the boss of you. But the law of the spirit of life has set you free from that. How? Well, Paul said, let me tell you what the law was powerless to do. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Your personal rules of behavior in any given relationship, in your marriage, at work, how you should have behaved with him or with her or with those people, how you should have parented, how you should have observed formal laws, all of the laws, whatever those laws might be, only serve to establish the floor of how low we can go before we're condemned and then punished. 
But the laws can never restore us. They can't restore our relationships. And they can't restore our psyche or our self-respect or our peace or our joy. The application of the law is only capable of condemning us and punishing us. It is incapable of setting us free from our past. The law simply stands as an ever-present reminder of our guilt and the fact that we're just stuck with that guilt forever. Even when we wish to avoid that effect by trying to ignore our sin or deny our sin or explain or excuse away our sin or develop some kind of narrative or story to minimize our sin, we're still destined to live out our lives limping around, trying in vain to regain life's balance because of the injury sin has inflicted upon us. And Paul discovered that when Jesus came to usher in the long promised, the long-awaited, brand-new relationship with God through the Messiah, it did something even the best law in the world couldn't do for what the law, for what the rules, whatever rule it was that you violated, that assaulted your conscience, whatever the law was powerless to do, God did. How did he do it? He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh. By sending his own son, who wasn't guilty of anything, by sending his own perfect son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus said the word became flesh, recorded by John and made his dwelling among us. And God didn't send Jesus down here just to show us how to live in love, though he did that. And God didn't send Jesus down here just to show us what God is like, though he did that too. God sent Jesus in the form of sinful flesh so he could take upon himself that which you and I deserved so we could be set free. And so we wouldn't be caught between unacceptable options of either being defined by that sin or living a lie pretending that sin doesn't exist. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. At the cross, Jesus took on himself that which you actually deserved. And Jesus not only took on your sin, but he also took on himself the divine condemnation associated with your sin. And when Paul owned this truth, here's what Paul said. He said, brothers and sisters, he said, Ecclesia, to any of you who are as guilty as I am, when you understand and accept what God has done for you in Christ, there is no condemnation. Essentially, Paul explained that Jesus bid us to bring me your guilt and bring me your guilt without holding anything back. Bring me your guilt with your eyes wide wide open. You need no stories with me, no excuses, no narratives, and no blaming. Just bring it to me, Jesus said. And when you do this, God says, together, you and I will agree that you're guilty and you need to own that. But when you do, you're not condemned. Now when I see you, I don't see that guilt. And I don't want you to see it either. I want you to see you the way that I see you. And not just that, I want you to see others the way that I see them. And Paul ended on this. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God condemned something, but not you. God condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. What does this mean? It means that God has restored you to a guiltless relationship with him in spite of the fact that you're guilty, in spite of your actual guilt. 
God chose to love you and to listen to you and to relate to you as if your sin never happened. You're guilty because you did it, but you're not condemned because Jesus took your guilt upon himself. So in sum, when you enter into a new covenant relationship with God through Jesus the Messiah, four things happen. Here they are. Number one, you give up the right to condemn yourself because you are no longer yours to condemn. When you become a Christ follower, you give up your right to condemn yourself because you don't belong to you anymore. Guilt is not the boss of you. And you don't get to be the boss of you either. Jesus is your boss. And God says you're no longer condemned, which means that you can tell that voice of shame, yes, I'm guilty, but I'm not condemned. I've lost my right to condemn myself because I've been purchased with a price. I've been purchased with the blood of Christ. You give up the right to condemn yourself. Number two, your guilt will remind you, but it will not define you. You sinned, but you're not your sin. You're not what you did. God condemned the sin. He didn't condemn you. God does not condemn us when we're in Christ Jesus. Your past, your guilt, your worst sin, your worst day ever, your worst moment ever becomes a pivot point for you. Not so you can condemn yourself, but so you can look in gratitude to God. Now, exactly how huge is that? Here's a quick story. One day Jesus was teaching, and at the end of his teaching, there was an incident where a woman embarrassed herself and embarrassed the people who were hosting Jesus. I can't get into the story, we don't have time, but Jesus said this about her. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has been shown. Where did that go? I don't know how that happened. It's magical. All right. Let's go back. There it is. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The more you've been forgiven, the more you have in your past to be embarrassed of, the more that there is that you hope that nobody finds out about, the more is your capacity to love. The greater is your capacity to be grateful. Once you're in Christ, your past just becomes a pivot point for you to be able to look up and express your extraordinary gratitude to God for setting you free from the guilt that has been your boss. You forfeit the right to condemn yourself. Your guilt will remind you, not to define, remind you and not define you, and you will forfeit the right to condemn others. Because if you condemn others after you've been forgiven, you're just a hypocrite. And once you understand this, then you forfeit the right to just size other people up and write them off. Because that's what we do. I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as those sinners. It's not a stretch to say that the more judgmental you are, the less aware you are of your own sin. The more judgmental you are, the more likely it is that you have some big sin in your life that you've created an excuse for, you've created a narrative for. And all your guilt for that sin, you've just redirected towards somebody else. But the people who are confronted with and embrace and face their past sins and bring those sins with their eyes wide open to God find it almost impossible to judge anyone else because they know what a hypocrite that would make them. And once you've come to understand that in Christ, you're no longer condemned. You are perfectly positioned to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. Because after all, you freely receive. So how could you not freely give? You forfeit the right to condemn others. And finally, this last one, you're free to make restitution without expectations and excuses. See, 
This is a misnomer, so I'm going to tell you now. Christianity is not, I hurt you, I betrayed you, but then I asked God to forgive me, so now I'm good. That is not Christianity. Christianity is, I hurt you. I face my guilt. I ask God to forgive me, and then he gave me what I don't deserve, so the least I can do is come back to you and give you what you don't deserve. That's Christianity. God has directed you to love as you have been loved. And God, in his perfection, humbled himself through Jesus to give you what you don't deserve. See, there is absolutely no reason for us not to go back and make restitution to the people that we've hurt. And when we do that, we're not to go back with our narratives, with our excuses, or with our stories. I'm really sorry what I did hurt you. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Those are not the things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make restitution freely. I'm a sinner. I messed up. I made a mistake. I sinned. Because that's what God has freely done for us. Your restitution, your apology, your willingness to go back and face the person you hurt, the person you took from, may unlock a vault of bitterness that's been eating them alive from the inside. But when you step into this new kind of covenant relationship with God, in which you bring up all that stuff and you say, I did it, I'm guilty, no excuses, but I'm trusting in the fact that in you, Jesus, not only am I forgiven, but I'm no longer condemned. And because of that, I'm not going to condemn myself. And I'm not going to condemn anyone else either. God, every time I remember my past, it's going to remind me of how much you love me. So now I'm free to go back and without excuses, make restitution to the people I've hurt. When you do that, the guilt in your life lets go. It releases its grip on you, and you'll be free to love as God commands. So now we need to put this in motion, then we're wrapping up. Sorry to go a little long. But I ask you this question. Is there anybody waiting for you to make the first move? Is there anybody out there that's carrying around a wound that you inflicted upon them? If there is, what's stopping you? Is your pride keeping you from making that restitution? Is pride the boss of you? Jesus humbled himself for you, and now you're free to humble yourself for others. So are you ready to stop telling yourself the same old story? Are you ready to stop the excuses? Are you ready to be honest with God and get honest with others? Or do you still fear the consequences of confession more than the consequences of concealment? If you do, please stop. That just makes shame, guilt, and denial the boss of you. My past will remind me it will not define me. Before we read, uh, wrap up, actually, let's say this together out loud. Ready? My past will, not, will remind me it will not define me. That was fun. Let's do another. Shame, guilt, pride, and denial. You are not the boss of me. Ready? Shame, guilt, pride, and denial. You are not the boss of me. You don't control me anymore. Oh, and embarrassment? You're not the boss of me either. Ready? Oh, an embarrassment? You're not the boss of me either. Give yourselves a hand. That was nice. Good job. We have a relationship with God in which we're no longer condemned. Shame, guilt, pride, embarrassment, and denial. You've never offered us that. Only in Christ can we stand guilty but not condemned. So guilt, you're not the boss of me. And here's some encouragement. If you are having a hard time forgiving yourself, there's good news. It's done already. You're already forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because what the law could not do, 
God already did. And now he's just inviting you to step into it. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, guilt is so overwhelming. It is so ever-present. It is so much a part of our lives. It motivates so many of the things we say and do or don't say and don't do. But God, we we don't want to let guilt be the boss of us. So we're going to take it upon ourselves to walk right into this. To confess what we need to confess with no reservations and no excuses. Knowing that notwithstanding who we are, we belong to you. And we're not condemned. God, thank you for loving us though we don't deserve it. And for blessing us though there's no way we've earned it. You are the God. You are the God who has given us a way to live this life abundantly. God, we thank you for all this. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.